Amen. Please be seated. Thank you all. And uh, Steve, man, thanks for being here to play with us this morning. Appreciate it. Really do. Steve got up this morning uh, to, from Apple Valley to be here with us. And uh, yeah, yeah. And so he got here in time to like take a nap and do a whole bunch of other things because there's no traffic at the time you left. So very good. Welcome. Good to have you with us. Um, our text this morning, we're finishing up Jonah. So the fourth chapter of Jonah and um, verses uh, 5 to 11. So I'll pick it up um, in that verse. Remember last week, the question that God leaves Jonah with is, um, is it right for you to be angry? And as, as we always do with the scripture, to pay attention, to ask ourselves the same question, is it right for us to be angry? And then we get to sort of search ourselves. It's, there are some questions that, that in the New Testament and Old Testament are so contemporary that they don't need to be uh, looked at historically too much because it's just sort of straightforward. It gets at us. And, um, and that was one of those questions. And here's what happens afterwards. Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. A booth is just simply a little lean-to, um, just a place to sit. It was just a defined spot, hopefully out of the sun. And he sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. I, I bet he sat there hoping, not for turning, but for burning. And that's kind of what he was looking for. And the Lord God appointed a bush and made it come over Jonah to give him shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? Back to the same question. And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals. I love the writers in the Old Testament, um, oftentimes just giving us a little detail, not to forget that there's more than people at stake. The signs of God's activity are everywhere around Jonah. Think about it. It's the big fish story. It's that story that, that up into the New Testament and into the early church becomes a story of salvation and redemption and new life. It's a metaphor for, for the resurrection, for the death and resurrection of Jesus, this big fish story that is in Jonah. And there's enough there just to, to base everything on that. 
But there's the plant, there's this gift of shade, there's the withering of it. And Jonah doesn't work for either. So we, we get to see that, that the good and the bad falls on the just and the unjust in this story. It's a big story. It's a sign of God's activity. There's Jonah's anger, sign of an interior struggle. I think it points out a strong and, and passionate sense of feeling on Jonah's part. It, he, he really did hate his enemies. There was a sense, an internal sense of justice. It may not have been right or wrong in, in God's eyes, but it was definitely in Jonah there was a right and wrong here about Nineveh. It doesn't tell us whether the wrong is outside of us or inside of us. That's Eugene Peterson's take on this. It doesn't tell us in the story if the wrong is outside or inside. And the biggest sign of all is that Nineveh repents. That Jonah's preaching is actually making a difference. Those of us that preach from week to week wonder. I've been doing this for a long time. Not so much yet this morning. You might feel that at the end but, but, uh, of the morning that he's been doing this for a long time. But um, there is that sense in which we wonder, do our words make a difference? It was part of my doctor of ministry uh, final project was, do our words matter? Do they make a difference? And Jonah's made a difference. He can read the headlines. Nineveh repents. Jonah can't see what God's up to because Jonah has a small, underdeveloped heart and underdeveloped imagination about God. He cannot see what God might do beyond what he himself would do. Isn't that like us? We can't imagine God doing much more than what we could do. That God somehow is constrained in the same way we are. That God has the same set of feelings we have. That God somehow is more like us than being just God. Jonah judges God by the limits of his own heart and his own mind. Jonah is unpracticed in the ways of God. I think that's interesting for a prophet. The prophets often are seen as people that really know what God is up to, but I'm, I'm not so sure that's true. Jonah was unpracticed in the ways of God. He knows some things about God, but Jonah does not know God's heart. Doesn't get it. Um, a few weeks ago, my friend John Moore was here and preached. And I'm sorry to have missed his sermon, but, but I remember John is a, John's a fund developer. He worked at, at Fuller. He worked for a, a, an organization called CRM, a place called China Source. He raised millions of dollars for mission work around the globe. And John would, from time to time, take donors to the places where they were giving money. And some of them were just really fascinating. John, uh, I remember, took some of his, his uh, donors uh, uh, to, uh, to uh, Vietnam. And they started somewhere in the city, but before they were done, they're on motorcycles in the middle of the jungle and, and finding these missionaries way deep in the jungles of Vietnam and Cambodia. 
And John would talk with his donors about things. And he said, you know, you give money to these things. In many ways, you want what these missionaries have. You want to vicariously live through these people. You want what they've got. And then John would say this, but you lack one thing. Sacrifice. This is fascinating to me. John, uh, John would comment on the book I, um, from good to great. And then I think there was um, a, a follow-up book to that about retirement um, from uh, success to, um, can't remember the name, to um, significance. That was the name of the book. And John said, you know, we, later in our lives, we need to move from success the sacrifice. And that's the point. Jonah didn't get it. You don't have what these people have. They're living their faith. They're giving something up. Peterson says, at the center of communion is service. It's giving your life away. One of my favorite books, and um, I would have entitled the whole series Under the Unpredictable Plant. It's Eugene Peterson's book. You can show that slide if you have it, Barbara. Um, if not, that's fine. There it is. So Under the Unpredictable Plant by Eugene Peterson, an exploration, exploration of vocational holiness. There's a, um, it's a great book. Um, it's about Jonah, obviously. And um, in it, towards the end, he tells a story about um, himself as a young boy um, growing up in um, Montana and out in the, outside the city in the country. And um, he has a neighbor, a big Norwegian farmer. Um, and that farmer's name is Leonard Storm. And he, he writes about this. He says, when I was five years old, I would walk across the meadow between our backyard and its fenced fields. I would stand at the barbed wire strand and watch the farmer plow the field with his enormous tractor. The thing I wished for most in those days was to get a ride on that John Deere tractor. My uncle sold International Harvester, so he would have been really disappointed in this. One summer day, I was standing at the fence. I would never have dared to climb through it, watching Brother Storm. For that was the farmer's name. Plow the field. He was probably 100 yards away when he spotted me, and he stopped the tractor, stood up from the seat, and made strong waving motions to me with his big arm. I had never seen anyone use gestures like that. Peterson's Norwegian, so that would be one of the reasons he looked um, mean and angry. He was large and ominous in his bib overalls and straw hat. He was yelling at me. But the wind was blowing against him. I couldn't hear anything. I knew that I was probably where I shouldn't be. Five-year-old boys often are. I turned and left. Sadly, I hadn't felt I was doing anything wrong. I was only watching him from what I thought was a safe distance and wishing that someday, somehow, 
I could get to ride on that tractor, I went home feeling rejected and rebuked. It's a great story. We're a little bit like little Pete, Eugene Peterson. We watch from a distance, a safe distance, this big grand thing that's happening with that big John Deere out in the field. And we watch from a distance, a safe distance. But God does things in a big way, like Nineveh. God does big things in a big way, like Nineveh. Bigger than we can imagine. Peterson continues with the story. Leonard and Olga Storm were huge Norwegians and forbidding. I was in awe of them. They never smiled. They exuded a kind of thick Nordic gloom. They were members of our church and always sat in the back row with their son, who was confined to a wheelchair with muscular dystrophy. They were also rich, at least rich by the standards of our working class, sectarian congregation. They had moved into our mountain valley from the plains of eastern Montana, where they had made a lot of money from wheat fields and oil wells. Whenever there was an emergency need for money in the church, the furnace needing replacement, say the pastor would work the fundraising on the spot from the pulpit. We need $2,000. How many will give 20? How many 50? How many 10? And people would raise their hands and the pastor had a pad of paper and kept a running total. When the interjected prayers weren't opening up any more hearts or wallets and we were still far short of the goal, Brother Storm, everyone was either brother or sister in our fellowship, would rise ponderously from his station in the back pew and say, I'll make up the difference. And the difference was always several hundred dollars. I was always impressed. He was always impressed with how big everything was. The Sunday after my disappointment at the edge of the big field, Brother Storm called me over after worship and said, Little Pete, he always called me Little Pete. I hated that. Little Pete, why didn't you come out to the field Thursday and ride the tractor with me? I told him that I didn't know I could have. But I thought he was chasing me away. He said, I called you to come. I waved for you to come. Why did you leave? I said that I didn't know that he was, what he was doing, he said. He said, what, what do you mean? What do you do when you want to get somebody to come to you? I showed him, extending my index finger and curling it back towards me two or three times. <laughs> he harumphed. That's piddling. Little Pete, on the farm we do things big. Major Hoople in the comics of 30 years ago was always harumphing. In real, Brother Storm, who also looked a little like Major Hoople, was the only person I ever knew who harumphed. That's piddling, Little Pete. We do things in a big way. Y'all have attempted to do some big things in big ways. And it's good to do it. But we often shrink back from the big, big things. It's too hard. 
Maybe people won't agree. Maybe embracing the neighborhood is just too much. You know, I used to do that when I was younger. Maybe what God is doing with this church is putting everything in front of us right now and challenging us to take on something big and expand our imagination. I don't know what it is. Peterson writes this, we stand at our lecterns and pulpits and extend an index finger to suggest that people tidy up their morality or embellish their piety or get the facts straight. And God is waving windmill-like arms, Jesus' arms, calling us to grace and mercy and salvation, not just for ourselves, but for the world. Isn't it time we stop piddling around? Preachers in their pulpits and peoples in their pews, piddling. We made the appropriate response to God's big gesture. We did this. Maybe it's time we make the response. The story of Jonah isn't really about Nineveh, it's about the people of God. And whether or not we will expand our hearts to be like God's heart our vision to be like God's vision, our lives to be spent like God spent Jesus. These stories do all converge. We spend most of our time keeping a safe distance, grumbling over too much sun and not enough shade. Let's stop piddling around with our giving, with our service, with our going. Let's move into God's big arms. The sacrifice isn't into uncertainty, but it's into the very presence of God. It's such a remarkable thing. If you let go of your safe position, your safe place, you don't go to an unsafe place, you go to the safest of places right in the presence of God in the midst of the chaos of the world whether it's anti-racism, celebration of Juneteenth, along with Father's Day, whether it's going to the neighborhood with Matt and not just knowing the neighborhood from a distance because we bring food to, to take to these neighborhoods, but we get to see faces and hear stories. It makes a difference. into what might be uncomfortable. You're invited like Jonah to move beyond your comfort. A few days after my disappointment, writes Peterson at the edge of the field, and his reprimand in church, I was back at the fence watching, hoping I might get a second chance. The giant Norwegian saw me, stopped the tractor, did it again. 
made that sweeping motion of invitation, and I was through the barbed wire in a flash, running across the furrowed field, and then up on the big green John Deere. He let me stand in front of him, holding the steering wheel, pulling the plow down that long stretch of field. My smallness now absorbed, absorbed into his largeness. Isn't that what our hearts long for? For our smallness to be absorbed into God's greatness. What keeps us from that? What keeps you and me from God? from God's bigness, from God's sweeping arms. Pray with me. God, I don't know what's holding me back. I suppose... It's simply holding on to things that, that I've made into some sort of security. Attitudes that I've held on to that um, I know where they come from. I can trust them. But you're asking me to abandon them. Feelings towards people that I know what my feelings are at that point. I don't have to trust the fact that it might be uncomfortable to change them. To go be in a neighborhood where I don't understand language as well. Where I might not understand, but where you might be actually standing with the people of that neighborhood. May I be through the barbed wire in a flash and stand before you in Jesus' name. Amen. May I invite you all to stand with us. I'll sing together. <clears throat>